If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about textual criticism. This is the field of study through which we can know the original text of the New Testament. We are continuing from the previous episode today. Well, I guess also maybe the, the Pharisees wouldn't understand just call without call to repentance well, at that point. Yeah, it's quite possible. This is early in Jesus' ministry. But as I say, I've seen pastors with that idea. They're just more authentic and nicer people. It's more fun to hang out with those guys. But you know what? The Bible is pretty clear that tax collectors and sinners were not nice people. Neither were the bad guys. Okay, they, they, These Pharisees and scribes were not nice people either. None of us, we all need Jesus. We all are sinners needing to be called to repentance. Interestingly, in Matthew 9.13, the parallel passage there, once again, the the critical text omits it. In Mark, 90% of the manuscripts have two repentance, included 10% are missing it. In Matthew, 96% have it, 4% are missing it. Luke 5.32, the parallel passage in Luke, that has it in all of them. So there it is in the critical text. So once again, it's an opportunity to prefer the one that creates a discrepancy with quoted or parallel material. Now, if you look at this, though, what, what, what's the most obvious explanation? What's the best explanation for why a small number of manuscripts are missing to repentance? There was an accidental omission at some point. Yeah. So one scribe accidentally jumped over that to repentance, an accidental omission, which studies show conclusively is by far the most common scribal error. It's not intentional. And that's the obvious answer. You know, it makes perfect sense. It was in there originally to repentance, and that's why it's in most of them, that some scribe at some point accidentally omitted that, and, and what's copied from his would also have that omission. Remember the rule. The reading that best explains the origin of the others is to be preferred. This is the, the one, accidental omission. It's clear, simple, and it's what the studies show is the most common error. It's the best explanation. Otherwise, you'd have to, to try to explain why somebody added it in and added it into Mark as well. Uh, but again, here, the rule, the reading that creates discrepancies with other quoted or parallel materials to be preferred that trumps it because this is the one that will give us the discrepancy. So they might say that, well, you know, a scribe who remembered Luke remembered that Jesus said that, so he inserted it. But you have two problems with that. One, if you have a scribe, and you have to assume he knows the Bible well enough that he's essentially memorized Luke, he knows what's said there, that he would still look here and take it upon himself to change Holy Writ, which he wouldn't do. And then how does it get into the vast majority of manuscripts? By the time some scribe is making a copy, there's all kinds of other copies already out there with two repentance in it. How does two repentance, if it's not the original, how does it gain this numerical 
preponderance of 90% to 10, 96% to 4. It is not a reasonable explanation. There's another one. The account of the rich young ruler. You remember he comes to Jesus asking, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. And we read that in Matthew 19.17, Mark 10.18, Luke 18.19. Now, we should note that Jesus is not denying his godhood here, as some critics would have it. He's simply trying to get the rich young ruler to understand the implications of calling Jesus good in this matter of how to inherit eternal life. Now, this is what his answer was. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. And it's testified to by three of the gospel writers. Now, the critical text, the Nestle Allen text, has this in Mark 10.18 and in Luke 18.19. But in one out of the three, it changes it. In Matthew 19.17, it reads this. And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And that's what you will see in critical text, and therefore in the New American Standard Bible, for example, this particular different reading is found in 0.9% only of the manuscripts of Matthew, about 10 manuscripts. Why, though? Why, why would they pick this one that's in such a few manuscripts? Well, we're told, remember the canons that were made up by a German rationalist in the 18th century, Scribes made changes to remove difficulties. Now, they should have chosen the original one. But instead, there's this other rule. Remember, the reading that creates discrepancies with other quoted or parallel material is to be preferred. So, this obviously creates a discrepancy with the quoted or parallel material. Because Mark and Luke say one thing. And you have a choice of variants in Matthew, one of which says the same thing as Mark and Luke, and one of which has a difference, well, they'll pick the one that's different. The most important thing is to add a contradiction into Scripture. And again, today's textual critics mostly, I would think, don't do that wittingly. But that is how the canons were set up to operate. Now, when we read their excuses or their, their rationale for this, Metzger, again, from his textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, says this, If the why do you call me good reading were original in Matthew, it is hard to imagine why copyists would have altered it to a more obscure one, where scribal assimilation to synoptic parallels occurs frequently. So, you see a certain amount of chutzpah in that explanation. The reason is that scribal assimilation to synoptic parallels occurs frequently, we're told. Scribes would change the text to match what the other gospel books say. He offers no evidence for that claim, nor do textual critics. They assume that the reading that creates a discrepancy is the original, and then that's the proof that scribes did it. That sounds like circular reasoning. It very much is circular reasoning, and it's, it's devastating. The Muslim apologist, Dr. Shabir Ali, for example, he has a, a powerful presentation 
called Eight Ways in which Matthew elevates the picture of Jesus. See, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, but he was not God. He was not divine. He was not deity. And they will say that the original picture of Jesus matched the, the Quranic picture of Jesus. But as time went on, Christians began to elevate who Jesus is. And so the first gospel book, which they will say is the gospel according to Mark, following the liberal critics, which is followed by the evangelical skeptics, though it's not true as we've seen, they will say that Mark has the lowest picture of Jesus, the least divine picture of Jesus. And then Matthew, which is the next one, elevates that picture. And and he will show you eight specific ways in which Matthew changes what he saw in Mark as he was copying from Mark. He changes it to make Jesus look more like deity. And are all of those eight based on the critical text? Well, this out of the eight, this is the only one that's dependent on the critical text. They are all dependent on, on things like Mark and priority and late dating of the gospel books, both of which are false, both of which are embraced by our evangelical scholars. This is the one out of the eight that depends on the critical text. And Shabir, as I said, his presentation is powerful until it's actually looked at in detail, and then it's just rather easy to debunk it. But he'll say here, look, Mark says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. And that makes it look like, makes it look like Jesus is denying his deity. Only God is good. I'm not good, therefore I'm not deity, which is actually not what he said, as we've shown. But that's what he'll say. And he'll say that Matthew then changed it to why are you asking me about what is good? He was trying to obscure this statement of Jesus where he's denying deity, to make it into something else that could accord with the deity of Jesus. That's what he's saying, and that depends on this being the original statement from Matthew, which is absolutely absurd. It's in, as I said, 0.9% of the manuscripts. It could not get into this kind of dominant position if it were original, if it were secondary, the why do you call me good? But here, again, the evangelicals are giving the enemies of the cause of Christ the very weapons with which to destroy us. Now, these are a few, few examples that I gave you, but you can imagine, and you might want to say, well, each one is, is a little thing. I, I don't think that's the case. I think some of them are pretty big. But on some people might say, well, you're just, you're just nitpicking here. But when you add them all together, and again, these are just a few examples. There are many more. They have this corrosive effect. Of the, the scholar, the seminarian who goes through his classes and keeps hearing these things and accepts them and sees, yep, yep, the Bible is making mistakes. The Bible has errors in it. The Bible is not inerrant. You can imagine what kind of corrosive effect that would have. I guess that's why today we see a lot of churches not taking the Bible as seriously as they should. I think I think so. I think this, what we call the three-headed monster here of historical criticism, Darwinism, and textual criticism, yes, the, these are the factors that have led to the the loss of our sense of biblical authority in the Western world. And yes, that is why the church is going down, why it's, it's declining and in such a parlous state, because when you lose scriptural authority, you're losing the whole basis on which Christianity rests. 
not in terms of, of what it's about. Jesus is, is the, this, the reality of Christianity, the central point and so on. But as we've said before, without the Bible, how do you even know? How do you know what the gospel is? How do you know what sin and salvation is? How do you know who Jesus is? It comes out of the Bible. And if we can't trust the Bible, as these things are telling us, then we're in trouble. Then we're in real trouble. Now, let me switch tracks a bit here and talk about some more research on these. Remember I said that these rules, these canons that were made up and published in 1796 by Griesbach and continue to be followed, I mentioned that research shows that they're all wrong. Here's another one. Let's look at the, the supposed rule that we've just looked at. Apply the reading that creates discrepancies with other quoted or parallel material is to be preferred. And again, that's very useful to liberal skeptics because discrepancies usually involve an error or a contradiction. Here's another rule that was proclaimed by fiat by Griesbach, and yet it's universally accepted without question. But is it true? Well, here's another one that for a long time was not studied, but since then has been studied. And what they've done, what these scholars have done, is look at so-called singular readings in the manuscripts. What's that? Singular readings are variants that you find only in one manuscript. And they're not ones that have gotten in other manuscripts. Now, they could be in other manuscripts that are no longer around. But they are singular in that they're only found in one manuscript of which we know. So we can be reasonably sure that the scribe made that change. If we don't find anywhere else but only in his, the most reasonable assumption is he made the change. Now, that may not always be the case, but with so many examples, we would think that, yes, there's certainly a statistically significant number of them. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but please join us for the next part, same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.